Hello everybody, welcome to the sixth episode of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie, and it was followed by a terrible sequel, you better believe we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular Sequelizers. Our first team is comprised of Mr. Stuart Ashen. Hello. And Alec Plowman. Hey. And our second team is Mr. Matthew Stockton. Yar. And Tom Martin. Oh, wait. This week, once again, we're going to be tackling a film that's not necessarily the worst in the franchise, but it's where, as we like to call it, the rot set in. Mm-hmm. It really did. That ship is rotten. <sighs> ah, there's a pun there, because we're going to be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. And if you're not keeping track of subtitles, that's the second one. Yes. Not the, the other the first, five. The first shit one. Yeah. yeah. It's actually the best rated film we've talked about so far, in terms of like IMDb <clears throat> general reaction from audiences and things like that. Most of the things we've talked about so far have been like fives and things like that. This is actually a 7.3 on IMDb. What? what? 7.3? Unbelievably That's so, yeah. Technically speaking, half of the story had a quite a bit of promise and it set up some interesting things that just went nowhere. And, and the so other half of the story is the third film. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which is the so, main problem. So let's, yeah. let's get into that. What, why does Dead Man's Chest need fixing? It's basically The Matrix Reloaded with Starfish. <laughs> <laughs> Which I may or may not have said before, but I, love it, but I love it so much. I love that phrase so much that I'm going to say it again. But it, uh, it basically... That is your pitch title. Um, <clears throat> dot, dot, dot. Spoilers. But yeah, give it, give it a scrub. It just has... It, it does exactly all of the things that franchise cinema was doing in the early 2000s. It just basically sets up a load of stuff doesn't pay it off in in the in the second one splits the story over to uh two sequels um and just kind of goes off the deep end a bit and doesn't seem to respect a lot of what made the first one really good um and there's lots of yeah it, it. It, it did a lot of good things uh, so in, in the time when people were pushing cgi it did really good cgi in places yeah, the day yeah. everyone i think can unanimously agree the davy jones performance oh, is really solid and this um, continues to get cited as well particularly yeah. from a visual effects exactly movie. exactly yeah. it it's was just, incredibly groundbreaking yeah. for the time but the, st- the writing is so abysmal and the fact that you're leading with um Keira Knightley Orlando Bloom and oh I've got another name now who plays um Davenport. Jack, Jack Davenport. 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 Yeah, Jack. I mean, the only actor who can bring more wood to a performance than fucking Pinocchio and Ron Jeremy combined. (laughs) (laughs) He is awful in everything. He He really is. I think he kind of is meant to be, but that's that's the whole point almost, is that the the film tonally... Yeah, but they made him such a central character. You're like, oh, dude. He never feels like he's in the films. Like, every moment he's on screen, you're catapulted out of your seat and into the bloody parking lot behind. You know, it just... The immersion-breaking Jack Davenport. Yeah. That should <laughs> be his name. Yeah, they, they sort of almost... It, it feels like a film done by focus group in a way of like, ooh, what performed well in the first film? It's like, well, let's bring back um, the the two pirate buddies, Raggedy and... Oh, <laughs> no. Raggedy yeah. Ann and the guy in the office. Yes, so, exactly. There, yeah. um, yeah, it's right. right and just... Um, and more Jack and more Supernatural. It's like, yeah, you've kind of gone off the deep end yeah. too much it, it, it's it just rounded into some I think the issue was that they didn't have a script um, like with a lot of these problems they yeah. didn't actually have a script written before they had to go and build a load of sets and there's been many other films that have had that issue uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head because I'm stupid but Alien 3 Alien 3 th- oh <laughs> that means nothing at this point foreshadowing um but yeah, the, it just they didn't have a script, and it was kind of a bit, almost a bit, almost like Quantum of Solace. There was a lot of rewrites on set, and it, and when you've got a big labyrinthine film that stretched over, like, and both of them are quite long films as well, which is oh, quite yes. a, quite an issue. Just something I wanted to come back to is the length thing. Is that it's um, because Pirates of the Caribbean, while 
a very good film. One of my complaints about that first film is it's about 20 minutes too long. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, my only it can be shame complaint with yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And I feel that it's a really weird thing because they didn't get the pirate swashbuckling movie being the appeal of the movie, mm. which I find... Yeah. it's Pirates is such a weird genre in general. Yeah, since Cutthroat Island... The high point wants yeah. to go near it, mm. and that obviously wasn't. It's, it is Disney, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, based it. on the. Well, that's oh, the other, based on the theme. Yeah, it's based on the theme park, though, isn't mm. it? Um, but which that, is always a good sign for a good narrative. Yeah, there's these kids, oh, right? And they're like in this like small boat, and it slowly goes past lots of islands, and there's like pirates on them. Yeah, and then they buy some sweets. Can we stretch that to two hours? Yeah. Two and a half. We can stretch it to nine, apparently. (laughs) Apparently, the original film, in its original draft, made much more direct reference to the Red Rock. And this was something that they then said you have to take out. But the the things that happened mirrored directly the things that happened on Mm. the ride, which is very strange. Yeah. Just as strange when you go to, well, not not Paris, but if you go to most other Disneyland's or Disney World's or Disney... Whatever, um, and there'll be they'll, they've inserted Jack Sparrow into various bits of it, and it's like this feels even less like it's linked into some sort of actual yeah. um, unified franchise. And it's like, oh, here's a ride. I get it. Pirates are invading, and then you know, amongst all the weird '70s designs of uh, of these people from the past, um, you have Johnny Depp going, "Oh, hello," and goes down again from <laughs> a barrel. I was like, "What the fuck is this?" That and that is the issue, really. Is that I think in this this film this film is the beginning of what then set in. By the time uh, the on Strange, of death. well, yeah, on Strange. <laughs> by the time on Stranger Tides come out, they're just like, oh fuck it, you know what? We can't, we don't, we can't and won't get uh, Will and Elizabeth Turner back. So we'll just make who is essentially the kind of jester character, the main character, and it doesn't work. And they start to do this too much in the second film, yeah. and it just doesn't work because he, the whole point of it is that he, as a jester or kind of like as a Loki type figure, mm-hmm. he's meant to weave in and out of the main plot and Absolutely. cause mischief, yeah. but not actually be the plot because it's not funny when he's just he has to be. Mad on. Max and Fury Road without being yeah. Yeah. serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just has to be on the whole time doing his thing and it just wears thin so quickly. It's like, oh, you know, his, he, you, the suspension mm. of disbelief, as little as it is when you've got pirates that turn into skeleton zombies, whatever, mm. is just is gone by that point. It's strange how it has just kept going as well. Yeah. That, that we're on film. It kind of stopped. Now. And then you think, like, oh, they're finished. Oh, no, there's another one. Oh, they're finished again. It's been four years. Oh, no, there's another one. Yeah. There's like four year gaps between it, the last two. It's the frustration of no like, why these films that are exceptionally long and arguably strangely very boring, like, say, the Transformers franchise and this franchise, mm. how they continue to make an exceptional amount of money. It's just familiarity. Like, oh, I know that. Actually, yeah. I'll go see it again. But the thing that I find interesting with it as well is it, I'd, I'd say, to, not to keep harking back to that, mate, Connection. What's weird about it is like with Transformers, they have such a pre-sold 1980s fan base. I know that a lot of the 1980s fans don't like trans- the, the new films. There's enough of a crossover. They've got the kids' toys, they've got all that kind of stuff. So there's enough mm. of like a thing to make sense. Same with Star Wars. It's got that kind of fan base that goes on. But like this is almost a bit like The Matrix, where it's like, I don't think I've ever met like a Pirates of the Caribbean fan. Mm. Uh, they clearly exist and they clearly do well in merchandising. But it just it's one of those things. It's not quite like The Matrix, where like you don't meet a Matrix fan that's not really talked about. But like well, as much as I hate to stereotype, people have presented themselves as stereotypes, and I can't help but draw from them in a general way. So this this will now feel like I'm bashing people, but I'm not. So it actually comes down to, for lack of a better word, mums. Um, mums <laughs> are the fans. Like, oh, I love Johnny, I'll go see him in a film. And that seems to be <clears> the <throat> Pirates of the Arabian main fan base. It's like that and 
And also, let's remember, Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, came out, what, nearly 15 years ago, nearly? Yeah. So, there are... And it's 2002, isn't it? It's yeah. earlier than that. Yeah. 2002. 2002, yeah. yeah. So, they're like, kids who or te- there are teenagers now who are you know who are conceived there. during the it's interesting though because I think part of the reason Pirates of the Caribbean still does so well mm. I think that there is actually the kids thing I think yeah. because of kids and pirates and there being that connection there yeah. particularly yeah. young children and a fascination with pirates and as I said there has been a void of pirate movies for some reason. The weird thing about Pirates of the Caribbean is that precisely nobody turned around and mm. went, let's make more pirate movies, with the exception of that weird 2004 Peter Pan that came out. That's the only thing I can think of that you could... There was another recent Peter Pan one. There was. was with, there? Hugh yeah. Jack- with Hugh Jackman, who is the first choice for Jack Sparrow. Oh, he was actually. Oh, yeah, it was really interesting. Because he was, the, he was unknown at that point. They didn't want to go with him. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. why the, it was written for him. That's why he's really? Jack. Yeah. Oh, Jack. right, Jack. Oh, yeah, wow. I think he would have done. That's why I'm named Jack as well. That's weird. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> other choices <laughs> included Christopher Walken. Yeah, I did read that. Uh, because Disney at one point was thinking of going straight to video, and mm-hmm. if they went straight he, to video, he showed up as Captain Hook in the. Live to TV musical version of Peter Pan. Oh, oh yeah, well, the stage on CBS. The stage production yeah. that was on TV. Yeah, and to, to take your point, Alec, yeah. actually, what I think is quite interesting is that all, it, you're completely right that there hasn't been uh, Hollywood hasn't latched onto it and gone. Oh, I know what will sell. Uh, it's a load of pirate movies. What they've gone is latched onto it and gone. I know what will sell. Johnny Depp playing that same character in as, everything as, else, everything yeah. else yeah. he's yeah. done. Also, somebody brief... called Tim Burton. Yeah. <laughs> also, for a brief period. Movies based on rides, which yes. is why we got the haunted <laughs> mansion. Yes. Yes. Because people looked at Pirates of the Caribbean and went, rides. And tomorrow, so we've yeah. got supposedly there's still going to be the Ridley Scott Monopoly adapt- adaptation, oh, which, God, oh, which nice. apparently is still apparently going to be <laughs> apparently that's still going to be a thing. Although Ridley appears to be otherwise Ridley engaged and transcribing the entirety of the Bible into the Alien universe. <laughs> 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 But we'll, we'll come on to that the later. The thing is that, that Alan uh, Moore did this with, the, with Watchmen quite heavily. He said, well, if superheroes were real, what would people go for? And it's pirates. Pirates was a sort of go-to mm. kid-based thing. And again, 50s, 40s, people from the, um, I'd say the 19, early 1900s, because it was far away enough from pirates themselves that they weren't actually, you know, genuinely, mm. a, you know, like a genuine threat. It, it was more the idea of it could be something that's fanciful and adventure and, the, you know, the Orient and exotic and words you shouldn't really say anymore. Things like <laughs> that. And empirical nonsense. But the idea that, yeah, that Pirates like, But it is interesting that no other studio decided to say, oh, Pirate... Because every time something like um, Harry Potter came out, it was like, well, we now need to get a child protagonist who is the special, who comes out. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. formed around that. And you had the sort of, well, let's make it more for an more adult audience and or a teen, uh, young adult audience, I should yeah. say, with like the Hunger Games and other things like that. And you had so many people, books being bought out as, you know, transcribed into film. But nobody said, oh, we should also make a pirate film. I, I mean, yeah, there have been, a, as you say, a few that have come out, but nothing really that said of the level of the budget's been poured into it. Well, it's interesting you compared it to Harry Potter because you didn't then say, well, they made a bunch of wizarding films. Mm. You know, they make a bunch of young adult, yeah. you know, teen-focused kind of things. And basically, I guess that's what they did with Johnny Depp. It was like, yeah. he's he's a great silly character, like you said, the yeah. kind of Joker, yeah. or Jester character. You, you had him in, you've got, got him in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, oh, you've got God. him in uh, the, Lone, the Lone Ranger reboot. Um, oh, God. Oh, my goodness. And what else? What else is... Also directed by Gore Verbinski, who we'll talk talk about later on. Yeah. And who else? There's another, I'm sure there's another. Alice in Wonderland. And the Alice in Wonderland. Oh, so there's, that's three 
characters who are set and I'm sure <laughs> basically the one. same yeah and then they yeah. also kind of even you could even argue with the rum diaries there's an element of his mm. of his, yeah. of, his yeah. jo- of his kind of Jack Sparrow well, that's all the rum to be fair that draws on, on his uh, Hunter S. Thompson I know yeah. but you I have got... strong thoughts on that movie because that's a discussion <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be sequelizers extra which is four hours of bonus Alex. episode <laughs> bonus yeah. episode. four hours of Alex, Alex ranting about inconsistencies in Hunter S. technically Thompson's speaking it is a sequel to a good film and as I recall we saw that together Alex we did mm. maybe it is let's reminisce about coming to a future episode of sequelizers the rum diaries there we are. Before we get to pitches and stuff, I of course need to know your team names. This I can guess one of the team's names. No, you, no, can't, you can't. They can't. Certain, oh, no, you can't. You can't. Certain form of no, road no, 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 aquatic no, no, creature. No, you can't. So wrong. It's unbelievable. So wrong. But the guys never known as Street Sharks. That is Stuart and Alec. What is your team name? Street Sharks. <laughs> it's, um, our team name. Uh, which will make no sense now, but lots of sense in a while. Oh, well, no, it won't. <laughs> Frampton comes aboard. <laughs> As in these... <laughs> Do you know of any other Frampton, sir? <laughs> Frampton comes aboard. <laughs> That's pretty... There's so yeah. many ways that could be read, and there's so much nuance to it. It's just kind of a thing of beauty. It's <laughs> deep, You just wait. Does it add? You just fucking wait. Does, does the depth get even deeper? It's like the sea. Johnny oh. Depp, fathoms. Oh, fathoms oh. of the sea. So, uh, so over to oh, yeah. the men possibly uh, formerly week, known as Street Sharks. I hope they're not called Sea Sharks. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uh, we're called Sea Sharks. We're called Sea Sharks. Oh, <laughs> oh man. It's the most obvious one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it was an obvious pun, but That's it was one that had to be. See, I, I had a message from Matt in the week, and he's like, I've got it. I cracked the team name. And he's like, what? And I was like, what, what is it, Matt? What are you going to do? He's like, Sea Sharks. And I was like, it's perfect. They'll never get that. It's hilarious. It, impli- <laughs> it implies that it implies that street I sharks. I got an essay are the back from Thomas. Yeah. That was great. That's like, great. And it's just like the street sharks are the norm. Yes, you have to specify that these that's, ones are from the scene. Yes, time. That's, that's, in case, scene in case, because that joke has clearly fallen flat on its face, audience. That was the joke that we were trying to make. We failed. Over to Frampton comes aboard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can say either of these team names without giggling. Good. Um, Job done. Yeah. So let's let's get the elevator pitch from you guys. Okay. We're going to give you our title first. Okay. Yes. Please. Yeah. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean: The Kraken Wakes. Okay. There's a kraken in it. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> There's no kraken in it. Spoilers. Yeah. We fucked up really bad. Spoilers. <laughs> Um, Played by Peter Frank. <laughs> well, well, actually, <laughs> in, in an earlier draft. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, this is going to be a good one. This oh, is the yeah. giggliest episode so far. Yeah. Um, Captain Jack Sparrow is thrust into adventure, danger, and an unexpected family reunion when tasked with finding the deadly Kraken. Mm. And over to you guys for your... Uh, sorry, are you addressing us, the sea sharks? Uh, yes, the sea yeah. sharks, okay, indeed. Nice, nice, nice. Our elevator pitch is, after a ship is attacked by a monstrous sea serpent, Jack Sparrow, Anne Bonnie, and East India Company Captain Horatio Bennington race across the Caribbean to harness or defeat this threat. Little do they know that everything has transpired is somehow linked to the mysterious powers of the pirate captain Blackbeard. And our film is called Pirates of the Caribbean, 
the Queen Anne's Revenge. Mm. Ooh, okay. Mm. We went old school pirate. We went out to the source book. Mm. And pirates. Oh, pirates. Yep, final book on my shelf said pirates. Yeah. Opened it. Is Ian McShane <laughs> Blackbeard? That's what I want to find out. Nope, no. Ian McShane wasn't big enough back then. No. Ooh, Physically big enough? No, he's grossed to the size of 10 men. Like, he's a strange man. He's too small. Can this not be part of the sequelizer's canon now? Isn't that like a thing? Like The running joke we get here. I don't know how we fucking got the street sharks as part of the canon, but it's there now. We can't escape our fate. In the final episode, are we going to have an egg and spoon race? I did. Yeah. I mean, that'd be awesome. That'd be radio gold. And a time-travelling 18-year-old action as well. Oh no! Oh, it's and okay. beats us all. Gosh, you young actors. It's like the goddamn. You're so action. strong and virile. <laughs> you clearly didn't know me back then. What's <laughs> like a kid? Yeah. 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 So back to Frampton comes aboard. <laughs> I should go ahead, probably. Right. Let's dive into your full yeah. pitch then, shall we? Okay. So. We'll, so. we'll be alternating this one. Oh, oh you've got for the yeah. Yeah. See, at least that's the old three shots. It's the old three shots play. That's correct. <laughs> We've got to give our other deets, though, first. You've got oh, themes true. that you often have, so yeah. let's yeah. get those okay. first as well. Themes. Pirates having adventures. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> lacking from the actual sequence. <laughs> yeah. Right. Medical problems. Loneliness. <laughs> 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 Um, other themes include No Man is an Island. <laughs> That's a pun and a half right there. <laughs> Apart from Peter Frampton, he might be an island. Um, damn it, they're really. <laughs> the evils of man are worse than any monster, and the reuniting of estranged families. Those are our themes. Okay. Right. But mostly pirates having adventures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess uh, our cast and crew. Ooh. We'll start with our crew. Um, directed, <laughs> directed once again by Gore Verbinski. Right. Uh, music by Hans Zimmer, with additional music including individual <laughs> pirate themes. <laughs> by provided by Peter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> And cinematography is that lizard from Rango. He's gone. No. He's gone. Stogden. Man down. Stogden down. Jesus. <laughs> Best episode ever. <laughs> Stretch it out, Matthew. Stretch it out. I can't fucking see. You suddenly sounded very Irish. Can't fucking see. <laughs> Damn, we've made him Irish. Look what we've done. <laughs> I mean, he's wearing the rifles. <laughs> so we still got our cinematography. Oh, yeah. cinematography by Darius Volsky. Yeah, who good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Cinematographed the first film. Yes, he certainly he did. did. He did. Yeah. Should we alternate through the cast? Let's let's okay. alternate um... through the cast. So to begin, Captain Jack Sparrow, of course, played by Johnny Depp. We have a new character called Commodore Daniels, who is played by Bill Nighy. Oh, nice. I wanted him to be Javier Bardem and called Commodore Amiga, but I wasn't allowed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Oh. Lee Arenberg will be returning as Pintle. With uh, Mackenzie Crook returning as Rigetti. Mm. 
Now, Captain McCorber Sparrow will be played by, of course, Keith Richards. Of course. Yeah. Captain Frianon Sparrow will be played by Stevie Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, as, soon as, you said, as soon as you said Rhiannon, I was like, he's not. He's not. Oh, God, he is. Oh, oh my word. We're not getting through this alive. No. Captain Dragonfly Michaels <laughs> will, of course, be played by Mick Fleetwood. <laughs> <laughs> Captain. What? <laughs> what the Did fuck? Did I look right this what? one? What is the I will admit that the Frampton thing was mine. <laughs> He's basically indulging me. Oh. And on that note, Captain Tenor Humble, Peter Frampton. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Captain Godwin Golden, none other than noted thespian Robert Plant. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you've seen Keith Richards in one of his movies. Yeah. That is the best way to get the band back together. <laughs> I like you did All this the bands before. back together. I think, I'm pretty sure Keith Richards turns up in the third film, not yes. the second. I was yeah. in fact pre-empted yeah. it. Yeah. Like, I've no, got noise when I'm straight in. Captain Marshall Killmister to be played by Lemmy from Motel. Oh, Obviously. my God. God. Killmister, yeah. yeah. This is... I think we've lost that. I think, it's, I think it's, we've... It's, it's too... It's too... It's too I few. don't mean to preempt my decisions. Yeah. You guys have sucked the teat of Jack. You have you have sacrificed it very <coughs> oh, feet. I mean it's 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 too horrendous to look away from, but too beautiful to live. Like, I just think we just need to lean into the darkness right now. This is the see. movie okay. you deserve to see. <laughs> <laughs> what have we done? What did we do to disaster? Oh, this is so fucking vanilla by comparison. Ooh, let's do it. has got pirates in it. <laughs> let's pitch the fuck out of this. You ready? Go for it. You begin, sir. Three years after the events of the first film, it is a dark time for piracy. A bitter pirate civil war has erupted amongst rival factions, causing chaos on the high seas. There is no end to the conflict in sight, and the death toll grows higher day by day. For Captain Jack Sparrow, however, these troubles are of little consequence. Once again at the helm of the Black Pearl, he spends his time plundering the waters of the Caribbean with his faithful crew. The Black Pearl spots a distant merchant ship seemingly laden with goods. Sparrow gives the order to give chase, but the merchant ship is a ruse. The British Navy has led them into a trap. With the Black Pearl surrounded by gunships on all sides, they have no choice but to surrender. Sparrow is led to Commodore Daniels, the man responsible for the ambush. Daniels tells him that the British Navy has taken the Black Pearl captive because they need Sparrow's help to end the pirate civil war. According to Daniels, the conflict's impact is catastrophic, not just on the pirates, but also on civilians and naval personnel that have been forced to intervene to try and minimise collateral damage. Sparrow reasons that he and his crew detest the civil war as much as Daniels seems to, but having entirely abstained from the conflict would have little impact on ending it. The Commodore agrees, telling him that they need his help to find Micawber Sparrow, Jack Sparrow's father. Jack freezes at the mention of his father's name. Composing himself, he explains to Daniels that he and his father are long estranged. He continues that, if the British Navy wants to find Micawber Sparrow, they want to do so for one reason, and that he will have no part unleashing that bastard of a beast upon the high seas. Daniels counters that that bastard of a beast he speaks of is the one thing that could quell the pirate civil war. Besides, Jack has no choice. He might have escaped from the gallows at Port Royal, but he is still wanted for crimes of piracy, crimes for which he and his crew are to be hanged. Daniels gives him an ultimatum. 
If he and his crew cooperate, the British government agrees to drop the charges against them and turn a blind eye to their future piracy endeavours. If they refuse, all of them face the gallows. Jack returns to the Black Pearl and tells the crew to prepare the ship for a journey to Pelagosto, the last known residence of his father. Sparrow is on edge about the trip, with his change in behaviour and demeanour noted by the crew. Rigetti and Pintel give the backstory of Captain Micawber Sparrow to their crewmates. They note that many years ago, a great threat came to the pirate community in the form of the deadly Kraken, the mythological squid-like sea beast. Dabbling in black magic and using an ancient enchanted flute to control the creature, the pirate Davy Jones used it to maraud across the seas, decimating pirate ships throughout the Caribbean in a quest for power and gold. Micawber and his wife Rhiannon united the Brethren Court of Pirates, Dragonfly Michaels, Tenor Humble, Godwin Golden and Marshall Kilmister, to take on Jones and the monster. After a fearsome sea battle, Jones was killed, while the seemingly immortal Kraken was subdued. However, the death toll of the battle was catastrophic, with Jack's elder brother Jonathan amongst the dead. Racked with guilt for his eldest son's death, Micawber determined that safeguarding the Kraken was his responsibility. Using Jones's flute to sedate the creature into compliance, he sailed off, never to be seen again, and leaving the ten-year-old Jack Sparrow without an elder brother and without a father. The Black Pearl arrives at Pelagosto, but flags hanging from the port reveal the symbol of a notorious cannibal tribe. Jack notes that this must be the place. If Micawber didn't want people coming after the beast, putting a tribe of bloodthirsty cannibals in their way was an effective deterrent. It is decided that the Black Pearl will keep its distance, while Jack, Daniels and a boarding party of British naval troops will sneak onto the island. Despite their best efforts at sneaking, the cannibal tribe captures the men. They are brought before Micawber, who lives in a cave by a large lagoon which houses the Kraken. Micawber's command over the fearsome beast has led the tribesmen to worship him as some kind of deity. Surprised to see his son, Micawber demands to know what has brought them to the island. Jack explains the situation regarding the Civil War and how the British want to use the Kraken to bring an end to the conflict. Micawber berates Jack and tells him he was a fool for believing Daniels. Indeed a fool he was, Daniels retorts, as his men raise their muskets to Jack and Micawber. Concurrently, we see British troops stationed aboard the Black Pearl forcibly gaining control of the ship from the crew and imprisoning them in the brig. Daniels reveals his true plan to Jack Sparrow. In reality, the British have little interest in the pirate civil war, which for them was but a minor inconvenience. But for the declining empire, the Kraken is a most valuable asset, the ultimate weapon in forcible colonisation, with the major pirate battle an ample excuse to test its formidable powers. He demands that Micawber hand over the flute. The captain refuses, until Daniels orders his men to turn their weapons on Jack. Not prepared to see a second son die, he reluctantly follows their orders. The two sparrows are tied up and left in the cave while the British, along with the Kraken, rejoin the Black Pearl, bound for the site of the pirate civil war. Micawber berates his son for bringing the British to him, while Jack insists that he did not have a choice. The pair argue, but their bickering is broken up by the arrival of members of the cannibal tribe, who rush to free Micawber. As they untie him, however, it becomes apparent to them that the Kraken is no longer present. Changing their tone, the cannibals retie Jack and Micawber and carry them to their village. With the Kraken in tow, Micawber was a god. Without it, he's lunch. Meanwhile, 
back on the Black Pearl, the imprisoned crew reason that in light of Daniel's double-cross, they will be sent to the gallows upon the ship's docking. Rigetti and Pintel pipe up and suggest a last-ditch attempt to take back control of the ship. Through a combination of ingenuity, swashbuckling, daring do, and signature sparrow winging it, Jack and Micawber are able to escape from the cannibals and flee the island in a boat, albeit with much comical bickering along the way. While Micawber is happy to be off the island, he questions exactly how Sparrow Jr. plans to recapture the Kraken and save the day. Jack responds, we go and talk to Mum. The pair makes for Tortuga to Rhiannon Sparrow's pirate stronghold. Arriving, they explain the situation to Rhiannon. She states that the only way to defeat the Kraken and the British is to unify the pirate forces. This means assembling the Brethren Court, getting them to see past the differences that have led to the pirate civil war, and uniting them against a common foe. She puts out the call to the pirate leaders and the trio make their way to Shipwreck Cove, the historical meeting place of the Brethren Court. The Brethren Court assembles and Rhiannon Sparrow explains the situation. Yet, in spite of the pressing need for urgency, a heated and bitter argument ensues amongst the pirate leaders. The disagreements that sparked the Civil War still rage, while no one wants to go into battle, fearing a repeat of their last fateful encounter with the Kraken. Jack tells Rhiannon and Micawber that the situation is hopeless. At this point, Micawber stands up and fires a flintlock pistol shot into the air, silencing their noise. He proceeds with a speech that, while off-kilter and rambling in a typically sparrow manner, makes an impassioned plea for cooperation amongst the brethren for the sake of the greater good. His pleas are heard, and the pirates agree to amass their fleets for a climactic battle against the British and their feared sea beast. En route to the final fight, Micawber has a heart-to-heart with Rhiannon. He explains that he left her and Jack to guard the Kraken because he couldn't face losing another son. Rhiannon counters that his surviving son ended up losing a father, which was almost as bad. She also tells Micawber that she doesn't think the Kraken needs a guardian. The creature's evil deeds are the result of the wills of evil men, and it is they, rather than the monster, that need to be kept in check. The Brethren arrive to find the battle already in full flow. The Kraken, led by the Black Pearl, is wreaking havoc, flanked by the British fleet. The Brethren charge their ships, and a fierce fight ensues. They battle bravely, but are overwhelmed by the sheer might of the Kraken and the British Armada. It looks to be a hopeless situation, but, at a crucial moment, Rigetti and Pintel enact their plan, regaining control of the Black Pearl and turning the tide. While Rhiannon directs the nautical battle against the British from her flagship, Micawber and Jack board the Pearl to find Daniels and the flute. After an epic swashbuckling sword fight, Daniels is defeated. Micawber retrieves the flute and makes his way to the Pearl's bow and plays a melody. The Kraken stops raising its gargantuan squid-like head from the water and making direct eye contact with Micawber. Micawber raises the flute to play another melody, but hesitates. Instead, he snaps the flute in two, throwing the broken pieces to the ocean. Seemingly understanding his meaning, the Kraken lowers into the water and swims away from the battle to seas unknown. Following the events of the battle, Micawber and Rhiannon are reunited, with Micawber once again taking his place in the Brethren of Pirates to ensure that another civil war does not take place. Jack returns to the Black Pearl to once again sail the Seven Seas, content that he is no longer estranged from his dad. The working title was 
Keith Richards and his magic flute. (laughs) (laughs) Featuring Peter Franton. Satisfaction (laughs) plays Fate to Black. Over to you, Sea Sharks, for your full pitch. Yes, indeed. So, uh, our uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, which is again titled Pirates of the Caribbean, The Queen Anne's Revenge, is uh, being released in 2006, which is three years after the original Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, For the director, we are tapping up the uh, talents of none other than Steven Spielberg, uh, mainly because we think that he can kind of deal with the kind of fun, light, adventurous tone a la Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park... Uh, obviously, hook uh, as yeah, well. Yeah, the semblance of fantasy without being pure fantasy. Yes, yeah. and also as uh, <laughs> the other thing we were thinking is that pretty much after about two thousand five, he hasn't done many great films. Yeah, much as that pains to say, it's, as a Spielberg nut, he hasn't done anything particularly notable. So this might be a fun little thing that would save him from doing some other a fun little thing things. that will save his career. <laughs> save his career. No, he's, he's fine. Steve, he Stephen, if you're listening, I love you forever. Um, so he's, not listening to <laughs> he's, not he's making if notes. If there's one, if there's one person I think we can be assured of is in listening to this, it's Steven Spielberg and David Fincher. If only. So with returning cast, we have Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow and Kevin McNally as Joshua Me Gibbs. With new cast at playing Blackbeard, we have none other than my mate Ray Winston. Um, I love the idea that listeners go she's a bit yeah I'm not I don't know Ray Winston I think we should clarify at this point that you don't I actually don't know Ray Winston (laughs) it's it's part of an elaborate in-joke between myself and mainly Alec Um, (laughs) mainly mainly Alec (laughs) although usually and Ray Winston Bob Hoskins Bob Hoskins Bob Bob, Bob, Bob Hoskins it's an in-joke about Bob Hoskins it's an in-joke about about Bob Hoskins which has now been made about Ray Winston anyway moving on before this completely slides into farce um, we're having Miranda Otto playing uh, the pirate Anne Bonny she of course uh, famously was in Lord of the Rings played a very strong uh, female character really good heroine or hero however we say it mm. and she's also been in War of the World so she's worked with Spielberg before that's very yeah, true yeah. Uh, we also got Clive Owen uh, as Horatia Bennington uh, he, at this point in his career he's at kind of peak Clive Owen he's just done uh, Sin City and Children of Men um, we want to catch him before he kind of slides in down for, from, until the rest of his career. For the rest of his yes. career after Pete Clive Owen. And I think his voice would be really good as a as a kind of East India company. You're going kind for of full, like Cockney. Yeah, yeah, kind of proper British yeah. kind of yeah. stuff. DOP, we're tapping up uh, Dean Cundy, who did Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13. Again, sort of solid visual effects, heavy uh, adventure based kind of films. And for the composer, we are do- having Klaus. Bedelt, who did the original Pirates of the Caribbean uh, score, uh, along with Hans Zimmer, but he did a lot of the really kind of uh, memorable parts of it. Yes. So, without further ado, we will uh, take you... Would you like me to start? Yeah, you can start them, I think, and uh, we'll take you into our world of... Pirating. Pirating. Yeah. Rape and pillage. Uh, they, they won't be present in this film because it's a family film but uh, that's a part of a lot of pirating so we're out we're out yeah, basically the words rape and pillage repeated for two and a half hours <laughs> as we go by through the plot that we scream here towards the by end by Jim, the, the, words, the words rape and murder is just a shot away were repeated many times in our film that's uh, a very good point because you're all in stones, stones. Uh, uh, yeah. very good anyway so after uh, several several opening logos from many companies um, we open on a hard-fought battle raging between a Spanish crew and a medley of pirates. Swords clash and pistol smoke fills the decks of the two ships tethered together. The Spaniards rally around their captain as the invading crew close in. In broken English, the captain surrenders, hoping to bargain for his men's lives with the pirate captain. Aboard the pirate vessel, the captain sits in his cabin, shrouded in darkness, 
perforated by thick beams of light. The door swings open and the Spanish captain is pushed inside. As the door closes, the pirate rises and stands next to the painting mounted on the wall covered in a velvet shroud. The pirate reminisces about sailing the seas alongside conquistadors, calling them good men. The Spanish captain asks for mercy. The pirate captain smirks and continues talking about events from a few hundred years ago, ignoring his fellow captain's pleas. As the pirate removes the shroud, the Spanish captain winces at a hideously deformed painting of a man, his flesh peeling with cockles and barnacles pressing through his skin. The pirate says it's an impressive portrait, wonderful attention to detail, and was also, coincidentally, painted for him by a Spaniard when he was a younger man. Trying to work this to his advantage, the Spanish captain asks, So you're a friend of Spain? The pirate captain introduces himself as Blackbeard and reels, I'm a friend to no one who sails these seas. And with that, he draws his sword and skewers the captain. Cut to titles. Dramatic music. Yeah, some bum 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 Really sad. Yeah. In a lively pub in Porto Cabello, ex-Navy East India Company man Horatio Bennington buys a drink for a very nervous and flushed-looking sailor. He assures him that everything will be fine and that he is safe to tell his story. The sailor gives an erratic and emotional tale, clearly suffering from shock. He mentions his old captain was sold a conch which could summon a great treasure from the sea. Bennington asks for clarification, but the sailor explains it was all a lie. They thought an island would appear or a path would reveal itself. Instead, their boat was ravaged by a monstrous sea serpent. Bennington, aware of how animated the sailor is getting, tries to calm him. Across the tavern, a red-haired female pirate looks pensive as she eavesdrops from afar. It becomes quickly apparent that many of the patrons are similarly listening in to the extravagant yarn. The sailor gets overly emotional and shouts the finale of his story, explaining that the survivors rowed ashore to Port Tiburon with the conch, and while his captain thought they could control it, no man could harness that kind of power. Hysterical, the sailor passes out. The room is deadly still as a standoff ensues between the treasure-hungry pirates and the East India Company operative. The door creaks open and everyone is alerted to a figure leaving the pub. The man turns and explains that it wasn't his finest exit and blames the door. That man is, of course, none other than Captain Jack Sparrow. A mad scramble to the harbour ensues with lots of free-running and slapstickery. Pirates fight in the streets while others cut through buildings and open windows. The red-haired pirate is revealed to be Irish pirate Anne Bonny and screams at her colleagues to make ready her ship. With the harbour in sight, Bonny notices Sparrow caught on a clothesline ziplining through the street. Launching herself off a nearby barrel, she jumps up and grabs him by the waist. Jack and Anne clearly know each other, and we learn that Jack was responsible for the sinking of her last ship. She's well aware that Sparrow somehow manages to fall on his feet like a cat, so feels as long as he's around, she'll get to the harbour first. From their high vantage point... Anne notices a man waving a giant EIC flag, or East India Company flag, to which Jack comments that being the fastest isn't everything. He then signals that a small man, unmanned skiff has been set alight and is heading towards the moored ships. Watching a ship go up in flames, Anne lets out a blood-curdling scream. Jack jokes about it and gets a punch in the gut. <laughs> Both pirates reach the harbour, and Bonnie tells Jack that no one should have that kind of power, otherwise you've just become the Navy, which they all hate. She gets caught up in a speech about freedom and finally notices that Jack has absconded. Seeing Jack's hat bobbing in the chaos, she gives chase. Sparrow tightrope walks along a narrow pier and waits impatiently. Noticing Anne is hot on his heel, Jack grumbles, but finally the Black Pearl, helmed by Josh Mee Gibbs, appears and hooks Jack with a cross-sail. Doffing his hat, he bids farewell to his pursuer, only to be surprised when she leaps off the pier and grips the rigging of the stern of the ship. Pulling herself aboard, Anne reunites with Gibbs. They clearly all know one another and have good standing. Jack also clumsily joins the crew and demands Anne is tossed overboard. Gibbs said it's bad luck to talk, throw an Irish woman to the sea, at which point Anne asks if this is the same crew who betrayed Sparrow and stole his ship the last time. Thinking better of the confrontation, 
Sparrow barks in order to make a heading for Port de Bron. Blackbeard's arrival at a PG-friendly brothel ends the frivolity, <laughs> and an icy silence washes over the room. He steps boldly to the bar and politely asks the owner if they know the whereabouts of the survivors of the Endeavour, whose ship he heard was attacked by a sea monster. A drunkard raises a tankard and assumes the pirate wants to hear the tale. Mid-story, the sailor removes the conch. Spying the shell, Blackbeard grabs it, expecting it closely. The drunk sailor unsheaths his cutlass and demands it back. Stumbling, he, run, he runs Blackbeard through, shocking everyone present. As the sword is removed, sand pours out where blood should flow. Blackbeard gruffly whispers, I'm on my own hourglass, mate. At the same time, Jack and Bonnie are making their way through Port Tiburon, saying they don't even know what to look for. The sailor crashes through a window, swiftly followed by Blackbeard, conch in hand. Jack comments, I imagine something of that nature. Blackbeard holds the conch aloft and says only he can command the sea and proceeds to crush the shell underfoot. In the distance, cannon fire from the Queen Anne's Revenge launches at the approaching Exeter, Bennington's ship. Bonnie, Sparrow and Blackbeard race to their respective ships and set sail. Both the Pearl and the Exeter chase the Queen Anne's Revenge whilst taking pot shots at each other. Gibbs highlights that the Queen Anne is faster than the Pearl and while the Black Pearl is a fast ship, he can't understand how they aren't breaking away. Aboard the Revenge, Blackbeard heads down to his cabin and removes the hideous painting to reveal a secret compartment with another conch inside. Aboard the Exeter, a helmsman tells Bennington that the Revenge is slowing. The captain gives the order to make ready for full boarding and combat. Similarly on the Pearl, the same thing is observed, and Barney gives a similar order. The audience are treated to an aside of Jack lowering a small rowing boat, unbeknownst to the rest of the crew. Standing on the deck of the Revenge, Blackbeard presses the conch to his lips and plays a simple tune. All at once the sea froths and foams as a towering leviathan emerges from the water. It almost seems to sniff the Queen Anne's Revenge before turning and submerging. The respective crews of the Exeter and the Pearl seem startled about the sight. After a brief calm, the leviathan reappears, tearing through the Exeter's hull, devouring those on board. Bennington gives several orders, but the damage is so quick, efficient and brutal that the men can barely react. Gibbs asks Jack if they should abandon the fight, but notices that he's gone. On board the Queen Anne's Revenge, Blackbeard gives the orders to sail away, allowing the beast time to digest. We are then given, we're then treated to an elaborate scene of Jack sneaking around the Queen Anne, pretending to be part of the crew. As the East India Company ship is destroyed, Bonnie rallies the crew to assist, readying the guns and firing at the sea serpent. As the Revenge sails away, a few rowboats and debris carrying the remaining Exeter sailors, a few rowboats and debris carry the remaining Exeter sailors to the pole. Bonnie extends his uh, has. Bonnie extends her services to Bennington, offering death if he doesn't agree to her terms. The East India Company officer admits he doesn't have much of a choice and is brought aboard. Understanding the full power Blackbeard commands, Bonnie feels the seas will be lost to independent entrepreneurs forever. At the same time, Jack appears with a conch in hand and tells the helm to make for Port Tiburon. Bennington says the closest island is in fact... Chatillon. See, Matt's put all this French in there. Uh, it's in <laughs> fact Chatillon, and Gibbs agrees it would be better to go somewhere that they didn't just leave under a hail of cannon powder. In Blackbeard's cabin, he runs his hand along a globe, which has a crude image of a sea serpent drawn upon it. One of the crewmen bursts in, asking why they didn't plunder the attacked ships. Lost in thought, Blackbeard asks the young pirate's name and how long he served aboard the ship. The man answers and explains his first year. Blackbeard welcomes the man to his cabin and starts to explain that he's been sailing the seas since the early 1500s. As a young man, his crew came across a treasure, and the only trinket they gave him was an hourglass with a small amount of sand in it. He produces the hourglass which is wrapped around his neck. He explains that while wearing it, death cannot see him, and he avoids his icy grip. 
But as the sand begins to run out, he met with the shaman who told him of a beast whose organ carries a gritty salt which would replenish the hourglass and prolong his life indefinitely. Driven with a desperate lust, he hunted the beasts to near extinction before realising that he needed to farm and conserve them in order to ensure his uh, longevity. The sailor begins pawing at the covered painting, asking what it is. Annoyed that the crewman hasn't really been listening to his story or paying attention, Blackbeard uncovers the painting and says that all recordings of his image match his true resemblance, while he physically appears unchanged. But it serves as a good reminder of who he is and why he needs to hunt majestic creatures that ultimately it pains him to destroy. The pirate lets out a long, irreverent wince at the portrait and says that it's a good thing they don't all look like that. Blackbeard says the effect does not extend to anyone who doesn't wear the hourglass. To prove this, he stabs him in the side. The pirate collapses to the floor, but Blackbeard removes a pinch of sand from the glass and rubs it into the wound, healing him almost instantly. The pirate is humbled and amazed by this, and says Blackbeard is a truly amazing man. Sullenly, Blackbeard confesses monstrous things have kept him alive. Thus, he is more monster than man. Taking a grizzled look at the portrait, Blackbeard sticks the cutlass through the pirate's heart and sits himself back behind his desk. The pole arrives in the nearby Port Chatillon, and as they pull into the dock, Gibbs notes that there are lines and dots carved into the shell. Jackie inspects it, and Bennington recognises them as notes, but cannot read sheet music. Gibbs then talks about old pirate tricks that surely playing the wrong tune would cause almost certain death. Bonnie hypothesises that this is what happened to the Endeavour, and that only the correct notation will summon the beast to be charmed in the way they want. This prompts an argument between Bonnie and Bennington about the merits of destroying or harnessing this power. It becomes quickly apparent that the argument is based on the assumption that they are across purposes, but Bennington appears to want to stop anyone using the conch as well, at which point they all agree it should be destroyed. Bennington asks Gibbs to hand him the conch, and he explains he handed it to Jack. Everyone notes that Jack is no longer on board the ship. Back on the Queen Anne's Revenge, the body of the deceased pirate is chucked overboard, and Blackbeard and his first mate return to the cabin. Inside, the captain goes to reshroud the painting, but now realises that it isn't hanging as it should be. Ripping it from the wall, he sees the conch is missing and frantically marches to the charts, shouting at his first mate to turn the ship around and head back to the site of the attack. Poring over the maps, he mumbles to himself that there are three potential islands in close proximity, which the survivors could have limped to if they got away, one of which is the Isle or Ile de Châtillon. On Châtillon, Sparrow's asking every harmonica and accordion player if they can play the notes on the shell, but they all seem to play by ear. Just as he comes across someone who can read it, Bonnie and Bennington catch up with Jack. Using his charm and wit, Jack maintains he was merely getting a head start. The conversation is broken up as cannonballs ring through the town. Blackbeard's crew disembark and wreak havoc on Port Town, tearing buildings apart. Escaping the town, Bonnie doesn't trust Jack's ear for music and wouldn't want to risk the pearl, which Bennington reminds them is effectively blocked in by the Queen Anne. As such, he says they need to find somewhere that is both on land and sea. Bennington recommends the nearby Dead Man's Cove, and says he can bring them there. Jack jokes about why it's called Dead Man's Co. Wah, wah, wah. Insert joke here. Blackbeard kills several townsfolk before the musician explains what they were looking for and points them in the direction of our heroes. Blackbeard shoots the musician and charges one of his crew to track the footprints. Jack, Bennington and Bonnie trek through the jungle via a pit of crocodiles and behind a waterfall to the hidden cove. Bonnie questions how Bennington knows the area so well, and he remarks he became familiar with the various small islands when he hunted pirates for the navy. Inside, an opening leads in from the sea, but there is plenty of room should they need to keep their distance from the beast. Jack tries to remember the tune and hums it for the others. Hoping for the best, Bonnie uses the conch, and the horn-like tune reverberates around the cave. After a few seconds of stillness, the waters lap gently before rolling out powerfully as the leviathan emerges from the water. For a moment, the group marvel at the creature before it starts to lash out. Unsure what is happening, the group seek cover. 
As the Leviathan thrashes in the water, Blackbeard appears from behind the waterfall curtain and says the beast will kill them all unless they hand over the conch. Begrudgingly, Bonnie gives the conch to Blackbeard who explains the notes must be played backwards to make the animal placid. He does so and the Leviathan presents its neck for slaughter. The experience is clearly a painful one for Blackbeard, but he kills the monster all the same. As the pirate cuts out an organ, much to the others' disgust, he explains how the power works and that he sees himself as a conservationist. Bonnie just says it's twisted logic. Blackbeard cuts open the organ and cracks open the hourglass, pouring grains inside. As he does, a pistol goes off. Seeing his own blood pouring from the wound causes Blackbeard to drop both the hourglass and the conch, and suddenly chaos ensues. Jack somehow ends up awkwardly juggling the severed organ. Comedy. Um, the, the Black Pearl crew also arrive with Gibbs saying they had some problem with the crocodiles and everyone engages in a mass fight in the middle of the melee Bennington runs over and picks up the hourglass being the one who took the shot he calls out to Bunny asking her to slide over the conch to him so he can destroy them at the same time donning both mystical items Bennington is revealed to be a true villain who can now rule the seas as he sees fit having served as a company man a navy man and now arguably a pirate he doesn't want another master Furious with this, Bonnie fights Bennington, hacking off an arm, but it starts to reform out of sand, and he laughs at his newfound immortality. Getting to his feet, the dying Blackbeard appears behind Bennington and rips the hourglass from him, saying he's sailed long enough and feels Davy Jones' locker calling him. Blackbeard destroys the hourglass, which causes the immediate ageing effect on the old pirate captain. Bennington, being the last wearer, is also struck by the effect and starts to erode in the same manner. Both crews stop fighting and watch in horror as both captains are reduced to pillars of sand and ash before falling into the sea. Bonnie explains to the Queen Anne's crew that they can serve under her or join their former captain. The men unanimously fall in line. Back on the Queen Anne's revenge, Bonnie chucks the painting out and puts her feet up on the desk. She gives her command and heading but says there's one last thing they need to do. On board the Pearl, Gibbs reports to Jack that the Revenger's gun ports are opening. A single shot run rings out, taking out the Pearl's central mast. Jack protests loudly. Bonnie calls from a ship that now they're even and sails away. Jack seems impressed and tells his crew to go back ashore and cut down the biggest tree they can find and that there are plenty more treasures to be found before tipping his hat forward and catching the small pile of sand that falls from the brim, smiling towards the camera. So there's some interesting choices they were casting. It seems to very much rely on the cast. And if you can wrangle... all, I mean, it, it kind of leans right into what they did in the real uh, number two and number... Well, it's number three when Keith Richards comes into it. I mean, if they're going to cast one... Obviously, Johnny Depp famously based his performance on Keith Richards, so they actually cast Keith Richards as his dad, so why not just lean into that and have all pirates as rock stars? Because pirates were kind of the rock stars slash the of their Depp's day. Which was mind, so was going to yeah. be... So, I, I think it's a I think it's, I think it's, 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 it's one of those things I think is a really nice idea for a theme. It's probably, in a practical sense, fucking chaotic and may not <laughs> actually work. Yeah, the amount of money you'd have to spend on riders alone would be extravagant. Frampton would not be allowed to talk. I've already decided. He'd <laughs> <laughs> have like a thing tied around his neck. Yeah, point at it and shake his head. Oh, sorry, guys. Yeah, no, no, speaky car. Yeah, no, it was fun, and it used the good parts of the existing film with the Kraken, and um, <coughs> it used, yeah, used elements from. It had more of a fucking firefight at the end with massive boats than the second or third one yeah. did mm-hmm. in the actual yeah. thing. So yeah. I think that's what the key thing was missing from the Pirates Caribbean films. One, the third one, they all square off and they say, "Oh, let's put two ships out to fight it out in a maelstrom." I was like, "No, you've gathered." 50 yeah. ships. Yeah. That's in what sounded like the whole Pirates of War thing sounded like it had that. Yeah. As we said, our main theme, Pirates Having Adventures. Adventures, yeah. 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 And uh, Frampton 
comes aboard. Yeah. Frampton comes, I mean, he, well, let, when, us, when, let us come aboard to your scene. Now, yeah, what, what, do you <laughs> think, what do you think of Sea Sharks and the Queen Anne's Revenge? I think it, it felt like a proper successor to the second one. I liked the way that you switched up the... Um, you switched up the cast. I think it's interesting we both did that. <clears throat> yeah, dropping yeah. Kira Knightley. I think we all had the right idea of like not them. Not them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, you kept very little from the first one. I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, you yeah. both. You both did. Yeah, some of you guys. I think this is a yeah. case of like what works. Well, people like Sparrow and and Gibbs. pirating and yes. Gibbs, Gibbs is Gibbs a good foil. We, yeah. we, we, we went Absolutely heavy great. with Gibbs. You went heavy with um, uh, Raggedy and Pintel. Yeah. I think like that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, uh, yeah. I think it going back to something that you guys said in the. Uh, at the beginning, which is that Johnny Depp needs somebody to work off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to. So we very much made it that there was this this triangle of characters. Yeah. That, um, I, yeah, I guess we did a similar thing as well, where we yeah. had you know the, the the existing relationship with uh, with with Anne Bonny and you know trying to actually give him people to bounce off of as a comic foil rather than just bounce off himself, mm-hmm. which ends up just being. We also know reveal why we cast Clive Owen because he can play arguably. Sort of roguish good guy, and also, oh no, he's a dickhead. Yeah, he's a yeah. So he can yeah. be, he can be yeah. really dickish. Yeah, and Ray yeah. Winston just sort of sitting there going, oh, staring at the wall, being really sad. <laughs> yeah. I thought, yeah, I thought your casting was really um, spot on, despite the absence of seventies rock. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yeah, well, that's for the third film, obviously. Well, Are we doing that. this thing again, where that that's film is a sequel to your film? <laughs> yeah, that's the. It seems to be the way. Yeah, yeah. We didn't mention any of the family stuff, so there you it's go. Feasible. Yeah, it's perfectly feasible. Well, ours is basically Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at sea. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it, you, you know, we could even pinch Spielberg, and ours that could be yeah, yeah. sequel to your sequel to your yeah. Temple of Water. <laughs> we got the aging at the end from yes. yeah, 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 that's definitely. Oh. Yeah. I think it's interesting because there was. I think we both were probably thinking quite Spielbergian because there yeah, because that's the lots of Indiana Jones references. Because I think we kind of went Saturday Serial. That yeah. was what yeah. we were thinking yeah, of as well, so. and that being mm. a pirate genre yeah. thing. You yeah, know, yeah, that being a thing that happens. So well, I think we, it's interesting that we both drew on that. Yeah, we both we both seem to have like. Um, Fun, swashbuckling, fighting, you know, silliness and slapstickery and all that sort of thing going on without being so convoluted as to the, yeah. the second film where it's that, so confusing. Like, oh, that's what I was going to bring up is that you both went for, I think both, all four of you, both teams went for standalone films. You didn't go for the, oh, it's building up to a bigger third film oh, and that no. sort of stuff. You avoided all the... The convolution and the horrible. I don't think it's a giant plot and mm, loads of extra shit going on. You both did like standalone. Here's a pirating adventure. That's all you need in a Pirates of the Caribbean yeah. movie. Adventure well, starts. You guys succeeded in that definitely. Yeah. Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean feels to me like, as I said, it's a perfect kind of serial. It's a Saturday serial. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. yeah, A Star Wars esque way. Mm, I think yeah. it's interesting. Because, of course, Empire Strikes Back is the first film that does the whole cliffhanger thing. Yes. Yeah. Only it totally doesn't, because it ties up most of the oh, loose yeah. ends that are in the film and then adds that on at the end. So yeah. you you get resolution, you just yeah. have this detail. Hmm. Which I think is what everybody misses when they just try and cleave a film yeah. in half. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember, in um, Dead Man's Chest, doesn't... Uh, Jeffrey Rush's character literally turn up in like the last shot. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Alive Along with the money the and, and yeah. eats an apple. I love apples in the yeah. first film. I love them in the second we, film. Arr, 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 arr. Well, <laughs> Jack's not here. We're going to need a captain. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be needing a new captain and eats an apple. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that was a good. Jack, that was like 
fights with Kraken. Because Jeffrey Rush is a fucking amazing pirate. Jeffrey yeah. Rush is one of the best things. Yeah, yeah, I was really impressed back. by my Jeffrey Rush. I was my Barbosa impression. I've, I've seen you in a new light. <laughs> so, a thing you guys touched on mm-hmm. about the Frampton Comes Aboard pitch is that you very much you know, <laughs> Frampton pitches aboard. Every Frampton, time the Frampton, Frampton yeah. comes aboard, Alec throws up the horns. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, for visual reference there, listeners, every time Alec is throwing the Dio horns. To Even be fair, yeah. I do sometimes pretend to play a guitar as well. That's true. Yeah, That's this was going on right. during the pitch as well. I hope it's like a noise that <laughs> happens. Like, what's that? I'll let you know. I'll add one in. <laughs> um, you... As Tom kind of mentioned, you rely heavily on the 70s rock stars, yes, which do. is very much your wheelhouse, Mr. Plowman. Well, that, that could um, really sum up my life yeah, as a state. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. You rely on 70s rock stars. I do. Yes, I, I do. do. Um, the fact that you'd actually get them all in the same room at the same time, sober and enough to actually act. They are all sober by this point, though. Um, I think this has been factored in. Lemmy's uh, not sober, but Lemmy never was. But no. Lemmy could always handle this high, so yeah. it doesn't really. Did Stevie Nicks go sober as well? Oh, Stevie Nicks was sober by that point. Stevie oh, Nicks right, was okay. sober by the nineties. Okay. She wasn't sticking cocaine up her bum anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's where she's going wrong. Yeah. Um, That's the secret. No, Frampton on the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> Frampton's got all of that. He's all about cocaine. He comes aboard. So yeah, what Tom mentioned is that you you kind of how smugly was invented. Stevie Nicks invented smuggling. Who knew? Yes. So what Tom mentioned is that you're relying on non-actors as not the main characters, but a central point in your cast. Mm. Does that worry you at all, or is it just kind of really? Like, it's only Keith Richards and Stevie Nicks who have any any, any yeah, actual yeah. heavy lifting. I think the rest of them are basically in like what essentially like a yeah. flashback kind of yeah. thing, and then they come together when they join the yeah. tribes at the end. All Lemmy's got to do is look hard and look through a telescope. Oh. I'm pretty sure with nine takes you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think. Well, this is Verbinski, so maybe 12. I think yeah. we were conscious about mm. that going in. Thing is that Keith Richards' portrayal in the first film is. He doesn't have to do much more than play himself because Jack. Because Johnny Depp is playing Keith Richards. Yeah. And I think that you can get away with that. I think of all of the people in that cast, I'm Stevie Nicks is the person most likely to have some acting chops. <laughs> I like it. Has she acted in anything? I think she's cameoed in stuff, but I yeah, don't know it's, if it's she's the emotional chops I'm worried about. Actually, hmm. I think Stevie Nicks is great. I think she'll do fine. <laughs> oh, no, I, just, I, I always these things. Don't I would worry, like to be. Nice. I would like to be surprised. I would like to go shit. Who the fuck knew? And go like. Like when Bowie started acting, and then yeah. crap, Bowie's good. Like, why don't we think of fucking Bowie? Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, why did you, yeah, why did you not Bowie? put Bowie anyway? It's the fine. Goblin King doesn't he, show up at some point. He could happen. be in the Tra-la-la. switch. Stevie next for Bowie, and it's gay dads. I like it. Jack Sparrow's pirate gay dad. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! But yeah, we think at the end of the day, given the sort of movie it is, given the the other people who aren't Stevie Nicks and um, <laughs> Keith Richards are sort of in a cameo. Yeah, role. yeah, yeah. And really, that we are basically requiring them to play themselves. That's true. Yeah, I think. Empires. I think if it had been a different scenario, if this had been fucking heat, we would have been screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but if we were this... doing Boyhood with Lemmy and Frampton, 
<laughs> Probably wouldn't have worked. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. I would love to see <laughs> what filming the shit out of that. <laughs> <laughs> think how long it would have been. God, oh my goodness. Yeah, so it is a bit of a gamble, but I think given what it is, I think we can get away with it. If it was anything else, totally wouldn't work. Yeah. But in this context, 70s rock stars <laughs> are coming out. You can to... hear the horns there, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another thing that it, it's fairly Jack Sparrow central, and what we talked about before is he needs to kind of have a, a straight man to kind of play off. You don't really have a straight man in that cast. I guess it's Nye and Daniels kind of mm. being the, the villainous kind of and he's also kind of playing off him going as the bad guy, but there's no, there's no, there's no Will, as, as terrible as Orlando Bloom is, there's no Will Turner to balance out the kind of Sparrow kind of thing. I think we deliberately dialed Jack Sparrow back a bit, mm. knowing that we had okay. Keith Richards. So <laughs> I think you've already got way. Jack Sparrow dial other Jack Sparrow yeah. down. Yeah, sure. We tried to make it a bit more, and it's the same with um, I've forgotten their names now, but Mackenzie Crook. Mm. Oh, the Raggedy and yeah. 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 And we actually tried to, we still want an element of that, and you get that in the kind of bickering and squabbling, but we wanted to mm. save Johnny Depp from himself, basically, by giving him, because I think we deliberately gave him. So does that mean that technically the lead character would be Keith Richards? Richards? The lead character is Keith Richards in this film. <laughs> That's bold. That's not saying it's a bad yeah, thing. No, just, no, that's, that's... If, if I saw those words written down, I'd be like, those are written by Alec Plowman. <laughs> <laughs> Only Alec. I was Only say, Alec. Only now I've realised also that we've done the thing whereby we've taken elements from the other films, and, the, and I know for a fact, oh, whatever yeah. we've done here, a studio exec would have said, where's the romance element? And both of us would have yeah. said, fuck off. No, yes. no. That, that would have been exactly yeah. my yeah. response. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a PG the correct answer. Would have also <laughs> been my response to where is Orlando Blue? Yeah. Bottom of the sea. Yeah. Romance, Wait, fuck off. Leaves. Orlando Blue, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. We, have, you have a colour of young people. We have a romance element. Keith Richards and Stevie Nicks. Well, yes. That's yeah, true. It's a mature. It's a, yeah. it's a mature. Yeah. Is your central yeah. character, apparently. Yes, he is. Yes, he And is. the horns are back. <laughs> so over to Sea Sharks yep. and the Queen Anne's Revenge. Yeah. Um, I know a little bit of pirate lore, and you guys have clearly done your research. I'm guessing Matt was a we went, key factor in Matt, that. Matt went deep into Matt the Matt went deep, yeah. yeah. Old pirate stories about people in bars right. telling stories. and Yeah. I was like, uh, again, the musical instrument thing being a link. And the second you started, yes, just imagine flute, a... like, Fuck! Yeah, we both were like, the, they, got, they went down the flute we route. We decided to go to Leviathan rather than Kraken because... The flute route is the name of their theft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter mm. Franz and that. So the, the flute, flute route. <laughs> root and toot and flute route. Oh, the square root of flute. Oh. <laughs> oh. That's the Synchronizer's prog album right yeah. now. Bloody hell. Square root. Uh, you were asking a question there somewhere. I was, <laughs> yeah. eventually. Sorry. Um, from what I understand, the hourglass, like, ever-changing face of the Pirate King thing is also a thing in pirate lore. Yep. That's right. Because um, I've heard that in other fiction that is obviously yeah. borrowed from the real thing. In general, it just feels a kind of... Um, I don't want to use the term derivative, but it is very oh, yeah, kind yeah. of based on historical yeah. things and law. Yeah. Um, so I do wonder if people who... I don't, there must be pirate nerds pirate, out yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, technically speaking, I would agree in one regard, but I would also say that everything about the Pirates of the Caribbean films is supposed to be... That's true. And the same way that Star Wars is a sort of... 
Uh, call back to old serials. Uh, uh, Indiana Jones is a callback to old serials. And also and the same sort of thing with the old um, Errol Flynn films and Captain Blood and things like that. So. And things like National Treasure play on that kind of, it's that kind of like the delight of recognising, oh, that's 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 the real story behind yeah. all of those legends because obviously we've added mm. the supernatural element it's, in it's the argument of like oh well that's it's actually parents the... talking to their kids and saying oh we're gonna but we're reading that shit. and it's it's you know the alternative history the real history of is stuff oh these were the legends that got passed down it's that whole kind of bullshit mm. which Disney often leans into and plays into yeah. a lot so so um, we, we include that the East India Company being presence yeah not as weird as they were in uh, in the Pirates of the Caribbean no, stuff no. but just a, as a as idea a, of a real powerhouse as a good cor- like anti <coughs> You know, and big corporate presence even at the time, even yeah. if that isn't driving exactly. out the idea of, um, uh, as I was saying, good entrepreneurs, and, yeah, uh, privateers, privateers, and, and pirates yeah. and such. Mm. Fair enough, fair enough. So we take, we we take the you, you can throw derivative at our feet, and we'll wear it like a badge. <laughs> Like I said, I, I didn't use that. No, 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 term. no, no. But I will. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, sure. I think it's, it is very much indulgent of. Much of the same way you go for like Saturday morning cereal kind of thing. It's indulgent of old tropes that people with nostalgia happy go, oh yeah, that's a pirate film. They lent Love into it. 70s rock, you lent into pirate law. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's basically it. For a Pirates of the Caribbean film, I felt was appropriate. <laughs> Wrong road. <laughs> and Alec did not. <laughs> um, so I guess that comes around to my decision. Yeah. Mm. And I feel like I, w- I would. It would be remiss of me not to pick a film with Lemmy in it. Oh, fuck it. And once again, Alec has played to my strength. Unknowingly, you did it in the Batman episode. <laughs> and you've done it again. So I'm going to give it to Frampton oh. Comes Aboard, which is still a team name I can't say out loud on that game. <laughs> Congratulations. You've now you. evened yeah. the score. Bang. It's been now three. I'm not doing this on purpose. I think there's an element of uh, <laughs> keeping things interesting and then, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. He's going to kill us all in the night. Well. Jesus, yeah. that got interesting. That's <laughs> yeah. where my mind's gone. Um, what, what are we doing next? Time? Yeah, what's next? So, next time, we're going to be talking about the sequel. It's a bit controversial because we discussed talking about discussion we had, yeah. straight to DVD sequels, and there is a ton of terrible Disney sequels that we could really dive into. But this is kind of first one of the modern era, the golden age of Disney that happened in the 90s and things like that. Return of Jafar. <laughs> Not Aladdin 2. It's not called that, as I just discovered. It, it is a sequel to Aladdin. We should it's a sequel to yes. Aladdin. Yes. And it is terrible. Really terrible. It's I'm like... Basically, a couple of cartoon episode pilots put together with some songs added. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. running time is dangerously short. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. It's not yeah. very good. <laughs> it's a challenge. in that one, kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It you won't. Well, if, they, the if they sat for Exorcist too, they're yeah. fine. If they've got this, I mean, if they've got this, they can love Exorcist. If they no one sat for Exorcist. No, I think six-year-olds are all into heresy. You know, it's like yeah. No, I think if they, if the audience has uh, reached this far, they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fine with that. Yeah, we hope. Please be fine. So, episode seven is going to be Return of Jafar. Yes. Mm. Good lord. <laughs> Chuck that title out. Yeah. Aladdin two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> Arabian Boogaloo. Arabian Boogaloo. Arabian Boogaloo. Two, Arabian Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> Frampton <laughs> goes Arabian. Sharks. <laughs> it's, it's just... So, Tom Martin. Yep. How can our dear listeners follow you on the internet? Well, I don't have personal Twitter and Instagram and all that because I'm very busy uh, running my film and video production company here in Norwich called Forward. So if you want to follow the kind of filmmaking shenanigans we get up to, you can visit our website, which is www.weareforward.uk. Or if you do want to follow us on all the social stuff on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, we are at Made by Forward. 
Matt Stockton, Hello. how about you? Um, I'm probably on two or three places on the internet. First of all, you can find me um, at my website, theredrighthand.co.uk, reviewing films and stuff. There'll be a, probably a review for the new Pirates of the Caribbean film, me calling it like, yeah. Um, filmmaking, <laughs> filmmaking stuff, uh, cheesemint.com. And you can go onto Twitter and follow me at Stogs, which is S-T-O-G-H-Z. Alternatively, you can just sort of look long, longingly at the sea and, and call my name. I'll appear. We'll both play appear. a tune on yeah. a conch and hope for the best. Yep. It'll be it'll first be a fin and you'll think, shit, it's a shark. And then I'll come out and walk in the streets and you'll think, no, that's a street <laughs> shark. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Stuart, how can people contact you through the interwebs and find all your stuff? I am Ashens on all things. That's all you need to that's know. That's all you need to know. <coughs> you got, like I said before, you've got the SEO sorted out. You just yeah, well, Google it. the word Ashen. They're all following people. me already, there trying to kill me. And Mr. Plowman. Well, you can follow me on Twitter, Alec underscore Plowman. If you want to read my interviews with 70s rock stars, then go to alecplowman.com because that is actually what is on <laughs> He's there. not kidding. No, yeah. no, no. And um, it's now been updated. Yeah, it has mm-hmm. been. Fucking hell. Now, including been, like, Peter, twice. Frampton. Peter Frampton. Jesus. Um, I should, uh, I'm also going to take this uh, opportunity to mention the band I'm in with Jack called Monster City on our most rock and roll episode. You can go to monstercityband.com and listen to our music. You can also follow me. I'm at JLW Chambers on basically everything. I'm like Ashens, just not as famous. Um, Yet. Or beautiful. Or aquatic. And of course you can follow the show, we're at Sequelizers, and if you want to send any suggestions, you have any questions, any Hate arguments mail. you want to start with me about my decisions, we're Sequelizers at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Peter Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've played too soon.